talking about going back to some basic things. I want to talk about two practices this morning that are so central to the early church. And we observe both of them today. We're going to do both of them today. The early church was so devoted to these two practices, they called them the sacraments. And, and the idea was, is that they would take a, a sacrament with something that was ordinary, but people would use it because God uses it to, well, for an extraordinary purpose in people's lives. In baptism, we use, well, you'll see here, some ordinary water. But there's something sacred. There's something powerful. There's a, a spiritual dynamic involved that takes place when people step into this tank and they go under the waters of baptism. Uh, in the early church, even, it was not unusual for people to be delivered from, from, from demonic spirits and everything. And I'm talking about not just back in Jesus' time, but throughout history. Some dynamic and powerful things would take place. And then in communion, uh, the, the Lord's table, many people call it. Uh, at your table today, you'll see these little pieces of bread and this little cup of juice where, well, you're going to get to dip it here in just a little bit. Very common very common uh, elements that we often use in life, and yet we're, they become um, something very powerful, a window that you can begin to look through. The point is toward the person of Jesus Christ and, and the life of God in a very powerful way. So baptism and communion really are, uh, are central to the life of the church, and God wants it to be that way uh, for us as well. He doesn't want it to be simply, we've been talking about this for a while, a religious ritual that we just come and do, but it is a life-giving reminder of his life that was given toward us, his grace that now embraces us, and his love that is unfolding and continually given to us. Now, I don't know about you, but it's kind of easy to go on autopilot and begin to miss the presence of Jesus Christ in these emblems and the power of it. And a lot of churches, they do it in such a way that it just becomes a, well, it's the first of the month, let's do it. And people just kind of begin to do it on the basis of that's what we always do. Well, I, I want to begin with the confession and get into the meaning behind these two practices, and we're going to take a little break in between. Uh, how, how many of you have ever done at least one thing in your life that you regret or wish that you could take back or that really made you embarrassed? Raise your hand. Yeah, raise your hand. Yeah, okay, I love that. You know, some of us understand, yeah, that's me. And then others of us are going, yeah, I think I might have. I have to really think. I'm really beginning to think Creeksiders are made up of a lot of liars. They're just, I'm not kidding. I mean, the last few weeks, you guys won't cop to anything. Well, Trina and I have gone, have had the joy because her brother works for Mark Burnett, the uh, originator and overseer of the show, Survivor, and we get to go down to the Survivor finale uh, oftentimes in May when it's in, um, or December when it's in uh, L.A. And we go down to CBS studio and spend, the, we leave right after church, and we go see the Survivor finale and go to the after party and spend the night, and then we get up in the morning, have breakfast, and right across the street from where we stay is the place called the Farmer's Market. Um, if any of you guys, and I know some of you gals do, probably some of you guys, you walk, you know, you read those trash magazines, people, and um, uh, Star, or whatever they are, and you watch, you know, TMZ and all those great shows. And oftentimes, you know what you'll see? You, you'll, you'll see them videotaping the uh, celebrities at the farmer's market where they shop. So we were down there one time walking around. It was during Christmas, and so it's all decked out, and all of a sudden, Trina grabs me and goes, look at that. Look at who, do you know who that is? I go, who? That guy over there. Look at him. I don't know. Who is it? It's Mark Wahlberg. 
Yeah, see? We got some other trashy people in here. I tell you, you're all over the place. But she goes, that's Mark Wahlberg. And I go, oh yeah, I think I've heard of him. And you know, and he's got his little wife there and his little kids. And you know, they're just walking around very unassuming, going over to see Santa Claus. And, and Trina, you know, she pulls her, don't do it. Don't go up there and say anything stupid. You know? <laughs> don't, don't yell out and call him over. Don't go up to him and do anything. Just, he's there. You see him? Yeah, dear, I see him. And so, so we, we go into this ice cream shop. And we're going to get an ice cream cone. And we're going there. And uh, she gets her ice cream cone. And, and then she, we're in line. And all of a sudden she turns around. There's Mark Wahlberg. He's coming to get ice cream with his family. And so we get our ice cream cone. We walk out. And, and, and I go, honey, where's your ice cream cone? She says, oh, I forgot it in there. <laughs> so she goes in there. And all of a sudden Mark Wahlberg's right in front. Getting his ice cream cone. And, and, he, and, she, and she goes to the guy, I think I forgot my ice cream cone. And Mark Wahlberg turns to her and goes, no, ma'am, I think you put it in your purse. <laughs> and, and she was worried about me. Oh. It's amazing what celebrity will do to a person. Uh, now that's a really good story and it didn't happen. <laughs> I made it all up except for the fact that Mark Wahlberg and his family was there and she did get a little bit excited, but we didn't have ice cream and she didn't stick it in her purse. <laughs> but, but now, but, well I could have left you believing it. Here's, here's our problem. See, it's not so much that we embarrass ourselves or that we oftentimes just kind of slip up and kind of make mistakes and do silly things. The Bible is really clear in Romans 3.23. And it says this, For all have sinned, missed God's perfection, missed the mark, and fallen short of the glory of God. See, there's this, there's this major gap between us and this holy God. And the Bible teaches that in Jesus, he came, well, to bridge that gap. That God has acted on our behalf by sending Jesus Christ to do that. Why? So that we could experience the joy of sins forgiven. Freedom from uh, the grasp and the grip of sin. Uh, we, we have a hard time grasping the reality of that forgiveness, though, and, and living in it. Because you know what? We still, still kind of mess up. But see, Jesus wanted his followers, every one of them, to be clear on the truth of this. And he wants us today to be clear on it. And part of the, the way is to remember this as well by receiving of these two sacraments. Of everything the church does, these two things are very unique. Because, well, the church 2,000 years ago, on the night that Jesus was betrayed before he was crucified, he enacted as, a, as, a, as really a picture of the Passover. During the Passover time, he did this and said, this is what I want the church to do until I come back. And then in the kingdom of heaven, we'll get to do it again together. But he says, this is what I want you to do to remember me. So think about it for 2,000 and some years on every continent, in every nation, in every church. Christ followers have practiced these sacraments, some of them at a great cost, 
But for most people in the United States today, we get to do it freely and we get to come together and celebrate. And I want to start with the sacrament of communion. I want to read in, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now let me just quickly give you the backdrop of verses 17 through 26. In chapter 11, 17 through 26, Paul is admonishing this church. This was the most gifted church, but it was also the most carnal. It was the, one of the largest churches, but it was also one of the most divisive. And he says they used to do these things called agape or love feasts. They'd come together, and it was like the first, this is like where church potlucks originated. They'd come together and they'd bring food. And they would just share together because oftentimes once a person come to Jesus Christ and made a commitment to Christ, they would be ostracized from the synagogue and from the family and the church. And so they really became families together. But over time, as can happen with any positive, well, uh, organic happening like the early church was, it can become very institutionalized. And so what happens here in these verses, Paul begins to admonish them and challenge them and say, you know something? You guys come together to worship, but those, those meeting times do more harm than good. Have <laughs> you ever been to a church where when they gathered, it caused more problems than it did to build up and help? Maybe some of you have, I don't know, but I've heard of them. And he says, Paul says that ought not to be. Well, what was the problem? He says you, they really begin to break down along socioeconomic lines. You had the rich over here, and you had the poor over here. They're eating filet mignon, and these guys are eating crackers. These guys over here are getting drunk, and these people are wishing they could get drunk. And, uh, you know, and, and all of this bad stuff was happening. Literally, it was almost like these dividing lines in the church. And it was built around socioeconomic lines and the haves and the have-nots. And Paul says, when you come together, that ought not to be. Now, the reason I tell you that is because it really is kind of important backdrop for some of the things that we're going to say, to understand some of the things that Paul says here. And I want to challenge you to think about how you see communion. Because some of us have grown up in different groups, different denominations, where you see communion a certain way. And, and, and it's not always the most positive. So we're going to talk about that this morning. As Paul directs the church, pick it up in verse 27. He says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread... Excuse me, let's go back to uh, verse 23. For I received from the Lord... This is Paul talking to the church. What I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed. And the Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks, broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said this, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise, the new way that I'm going to relate to you. It's going to be a relationship, not based on doing and religion and all these things. But this new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink. Do it. How? In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this cup and drink this cup, you proclaim what Jesus did and you're also proclaiming that he's coming back. So this has a past, a present, and a future tense dynamic to it. But he says, therefore, because of what I just said, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Now here's where it gets dicey. 
Now here's where a lot of people get really scared, fearful, and freaked out over communion. So a man should examine himself. Kind of circle that word up there unworthily and now check out this one. Examine himself. In this way that he should eat of the bread, drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment and uh, <clears throat> drinks judgment on himself. And this is why so many are sick and ill among you. And many have fallen asleep. If you were properly evaluating yourselves, we should not be judged. But then we are judged. We are disciplined by the Lord so that he may not be condemned with the world. The focus of doing communion, receiving communion, is that we do it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, because of our human nature, though, it's easy to kind of go into autopilot and forget what the purpose is. Um, some churches do it every month, the first Sunday of every month, or the third Sunday, or whatever. And pretty soon, that just becomes rote. Well, it's the third Sunday, we're going to do communion, let's load it up and throw it down, you know. And there's not a lot of thought put into it. Uh, some people do it only like at Christmas or Easter or New, uh, Christmas Eve or whatever, just a couple of times a year. Uh, we always have it available here on Sunday because for some people, for a lot of people, uh, this is really meaningful time. And we want to make sure that it's always available to you and it's usually right back here. Creekside doesn't have a set date. I try and make sure that when we do communion, I can, I can tie it, I can weave it into the fabric of what we're doing so that it has purpose and dynamic so that you think about it to really understand why you're doing it and that it has a purpose for that day other than, okay, boy, we've got to get her done, you know? Often communion in churches is, 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 is oftentimes, and some of you come from this background, that it's a somber and sad experience. And there, and there is a time for that. But, but, but the reason churches focus on that is because the emphasis is placed on the process of Jesus' death instead of the purpose of his death. The, the, the process, oh, okay, remember, he was whipped 39 times, and, you know, he was suffered, and he did, and all that's true, and it's important to remember it because that'll slap the slack out of our sails sometimes to never take for granted what he did. But really, the purpose of communion is to remember what he did for us and what the benefits are to us. See, I'm not so sure that Jesus intended for us to focus on the process, but the purpose that he intended. And I suggest um, that his intent wasn't for us to remember his pain, but to focus on the gain that his life, death, resurrection brought to us. See, the word Eucharist, that some of us from a liturgical background, that's what we use, that's what we understand, that this is, we're, we're going to celebrate the Eucharist. You know what Eucharist stands for, don't you? It just says, I thank. I remember, and I thank God for what he has done for my life. See, communion is just not what we do. It is fundamentally about what Christ has done and is doing today in our lives. Jesus, who is always present, doesn't just show up at the Eucharist or at communion. He is with us at all times and in all places. And he is present, though, in a special and unique way when we come to this table because the focus is simply this, is we're not going to forget. We are going to take time to remember Jesus. Not only who he is, but what he has done, the purpose for this time of communion because of his finished work on the cross what? We are freed from the penalty of sin, from the power and grip of its, of its, of its uh, strength and grip upon us. 
So it's powerful that in order to remember him, Jesus didn't ask for a monument to be erected or built. Or he didn't, you know, he didn't even ask for a holiday to be established. He says, I want you to experience it by a meal that you enjoy together. We studied this a few months ago, how Jesus loved to share a meal with people together. And in his day, it was simply a, a meaningful time of intimate interaction Coming together, sitting together, talking together in friendship. And so when Jesus institutes this meal, he does it around a table in Luke chapter 22. And he says, listen, followers, listen, guys, listen, disciples, listen, Peter and James and John and Judas. And I I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And so Paul actually quotes Jesus in this passage. And he is emphasizing again, you'll see a couple times here, where he says, I want you to do this, and I want you to remember what Jesus has done. Now imagine at that moment that those disciples are probably going to be sitting around the table. They've spent three years with Jesus. I'm sure that at least one of them thought, remember, do you think we could ever forget this, Lord? I mean, we hung out with you for three years, man. We've seen you multiply Loaves and fishes, we've seen you do miracles, heal people. We're going to forget that? Uh, But that's our problem. How many of us do forget what Jesus has done? How many of us do forget what Jesus is doing? See, I forget. I forget sometimes. Often, I'm, I'm forgiven. That I don't have to carry the guilt around of the wrong things that I've done. Jesus instituted communion so well that we could keep doing it on a regular basis as long as we live. Why? So we'd remember it. Because you know what? I had a teacher, a prof in college who said, he always said this, he goes, you know what? My, my forgetter is a lot better than my rememberer. And sometimes we just have a hard time remembering what Jesus has done because we sin. We mess up. We fall down. And it leads us to be tempted by despair to think, God, have you given up on me? Have I gone too far this time? And Jesus would continue to say, no, no, no. Come come back to my table and remember, not your guilt, not your failure, not your shortcomings, but remember me. And you know, loved ones in this church, that what's one of my focal points? While we talk about sin, you will never get over sin until your focus becomes Jesus instead of what you do. Until you focus on what Jesus has done, you'll never be able to get past what you're doing. I mean, there's a few people probably that might be motivated by all the negative stuff. But I'm motivated by knowing what someone loves me and has done for me. And that's why we come to remember. Well, when we come to this table, friends, it's also a time to examine within. Remember the passage there? And this is now we're going to get into some deep weeds. Um, But everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is often misunderstood. Some people think, okay, oh, I got to come and do a roto-rooter job. Okay, oh man, I blew this, I blew that, I did this, I did that. Oh boy, I hope I didn't miss anything. Ah, I'm not going to take communion. I don't know if I missed something. It's not that at all. Examine yourself as the idea of running a test. Take a little test. Test your heart. And in this context, it's a test toward two things. It's a test toward how are you doing with Jesus? 
And how are you doing with one another? Because remember, he's challenging these people about their disunity, about their elevation of themselves above others. Or the others that feel so inferior because of what they see in the others. He says, I want you to come together as a family, as a group, as a church body. He says, I want you to just examine yourself. Kind of do a test. Do a little checklist. Because Paul was concerned about how these people were responding and not caring for one another. See, when we come to the table here and we receive communion, well, it's the table of forgiveness, so you can't be unforgiving. Run a test this morning. Run it now. There's someone you're not forgiving. Make a commitment that today I drive a stake. I'm going to begin to forgive. It's a table of cleansing. So come and simply confess. Lord, you know, I can't even... I just, you know, I told a lie in church this morning about Trina, so forgive me. I mean, I just, I can't even, I can't even remember all the sin, you know what I mean? So I just say, Father, I'm going to tell you everything I know, but I know there's other stuff I forgot. But I know you, I know you love me. I know I love you. I, I want to receive this in a healthy, worthy manner. Forgive me. See, communion is used by so many churches because they don't understand it to cause fear in people. And I listen, churches, I, can I just tell you something? I think churches use fear way too much to try and motivate people. You know why? Because it works. You know? And there's, there's some things to fear. Hell's a thing to fear. I'll just tell you right now. But I'd rather, I'd, I'd rather tempt you with heaven than I would hell. But we use fear. And we use communion in a great way to cause people to fear God. When I was, I was in first or second grade, remember I've told you a lot about my second stepmother, the one that I didn't get along with and she really didn't like me. And I'll never forget, we were sitting in Oregon City Foursquare Church. I was just a little kid, first or second grade, three rows, two rows back from her. And she had this dark jet black hair and it was communion time. Now think about a little guy, a little first or second grade kid. And all of a sudden they're gonna pass these snacks. You know what I mean? A little, a little cup of juice and a little cracker right in the middle of church. And she turned around and she looked at me and, and she pointed her bony, bony finger at me. Jet black hair, dark. And she goes, don't you take it. You know, and told me not to take it. And, and she was scary. <laughs> it came by. I took it. We're driving home. We're driving home. And, and I always sat in the back seat on the left side, so I always saw her face in the mirror. And, and there's a couple of things in my life where she had these conversations with me that are so indelibly etched on my mind. And she looked in the mirror while she's talking. Did you take that? Yeah. And she goes, don't ever do that again or you'll go to hell. And, and so, you know, from, I'm not kidding you from that time. I didn't touch communion until like about three years ago. And uh, <laughs> because I never thought I was worthy. Okay, maybe 25 years ago. But, but, you know, it gets in your grill. And some of you grew up with that. And you think, my gosh, what if I do it unworthy? Either I'll die, I'll go to hell, or I'll get sick. And so we begin to fear this most precious and powerful emblems that God said, I want you to receive. But I want you to see and understand it. Do a test run on your life. Not a rotor rooter job, but you know, you know. 
Confess it. Examine yourself. But then move to, this is a time to be healed. Because it says there, remember, Lord, uh, don't take it in an unworthy manner or you'll be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Now hear me, listen. This is where it gets really dicey for people because we are, oh boy. Can I just tell you something? Nobody's worthy. When were you worthy to ever take of anything of God? It all starts with grace. What he has done, not what you do during the week. Now listen, hear me. If you're out there just, you know, doing whatever you want and, and you don't even have a bone in your body that wants to please God, that's a problem. But if you're tracking with Jesus and, and you love him and you're doing the best you can, and then come to this time and understand what it means. See, the idea of unworthily, it, 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 it's, it comes from the Greek word axios. And it's a word that draws on the concept of worthiness as it has to do with the weight of something. And it's worth based on its weight. See, in ancient times, coins were used. Um, uh, they, they were made from substances. And where their actual weight, it wasn't like a penny's worth a penny. But some of you see quarters or dimes. They start to get rubbed down and they begin to use some of their, lose some of their weight. Well, back then, everything was based on weight. Here, it's based on size and imprinting. But there, it was based on weight. And so, the coin was worth its weight. And then, through frequent use, it would lose small amounts of its alloy and their weight. And so, pretty soon, its, its buying power began to be reduced. And what Paul's really saying here is when you come to the Lord's table... It's not about your unworthiness. It's about taking, partaking worthily. Listen, bring the full weight of your faith. Bring the full weight of your belief. Bring the full weight of your understanding of who God is and what he is doing for you at this time so that when you receive it, your faith, your trust is being built. Your relationship is being built established. It's growing. Recognize the full weight and worth of what? Of what Jesus has done for you so that you can experience what? Forgiveness, healing, deliverance. Matthew 8.17 says this, that Jesus took on our weaknesses and our diseases. If you don't believe that, if you don't put worth in that, you're not going to rest and trust in it. So when you come to communion, it's going to be a religious exercise, and you'll stay sick, you'll stay unhealthy, you'll stay unforgiving, because you don't put the full weight and worth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That's why people get sick. It's about him and what he's done, and that you would trust in that and believe it. See, if we don't understand it that way, it doesn't make sense. It just becomes this fearful thing. Nobody would take communion. I wouldn't because I'm a stinking sinner. And, 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 and I have nothing to bring to the table. And I would be so fearful. Oh, God, did I forget something? And if you really logically reason that out, what, he's, what, what it would be saying is like this. It would be like a doctor saying to a sick person, listen, when you get just a little better, come see me and then I'll give you a prescription. It'd be like a, it would be like a loan officer saying to a poor person who needed to make their rent, listen, as soon as you get more money, I'll make the loan. Or a cook to somebody who's malnourished and hungry, gain some weight and I'll give you a meal. God's not saying that to us. He says, listen, examine yourself. Do a test run. Make sure. 
But then you bring the weight of what Jesus Christ has done to this time. Because that's what matters. This is what I want you to do. This is not a heavy time as, the, as Ian comes to lead us in some worship. I, I want you to do this. We're going to receive today. And if it's possible, maybe somebody's here, you're a first-timer, or maybe you've been here for a while, and you've never really responded to Jesus Christ. If you, take, if you receive this today, you simply you are just doing a religious exercise. There's no, there's no power, no dynamic to it. But if you've never responded to Christ, I would invite you to your table there. Just quietly say, Jesus, I want to receive you. Because I want to receive of your life from you. And it's really as simple as that to understand that Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected for our sinfulness. So that we could come to a time like this and do what? Two things. Celebrate and give thanks for who he is and for what he's done. Because we just loved ones. There's a lot of gifted people in here. But you just don't bring a whole lot to the table at a time like this. It's what he gives at the table. And I want this to be a powerful time, not a fearful time. So this morning, we're going we're, we're to receive of the communion emblems. And we're going to do what the Eucharist means, I thank. And what I want you to do for the next about three minutes, I want you to about the next minute, I want you to think, what do you want to thank God for today? And then I want you just at your table, don't give a sermon. Just go, I thank God for. And just go around the table and each person share. And then we're going to, in about three or four minutes, Ian's going to begin to lead us in some worship. And just feel free to sit, to stand and then you receive communion. There's a little cup there that you can dip it in. But you receive communion when you're ready. And then you give thanks to God. But, but do some examination. Lord, if there's any hurtful way in me, I want, it to, I want to remove it through you because of what you've done. Now, these people around these tables, probably 90% of them are really nice. So, if... if, if uh, uh, you know, I, I, there's 10% that might bite you, but um, don't worry about them. We're working on them, and uh, Jesus is working on them. So um, if you feel really uncomfortable saying anything, just go, I pass. And uh, then somebody else will say anything, and Creeksiders are good at that. But would you just take the next minute and just say, I thank God for. Just go ahead and do that, would you? Then we're going wor- to worship, and you can... The second sacrament that we're going to look at quickly here, and then we're going to participate it. And we're going to do this this morning. We've never done this before at Creekside. Um, if you're sitting here and you want to get baptized today, we're going to invite you to do it. Clothes and all. <laughs> now, that's why we're doing it at the end of service. This <laughs> ain't going to sit there in a dripping mess puddle for half of service like we usually do. But we have sweats, we have shirts, we have stuff that if you decide at the last minute, you say, I'm going to do this, then we're going to make it possible and you'll be able to change and go home dry and bring the stuff back. But uh, just real quickly, let me 
read to you Matthew 28. Jesus' last words. Some of his last words. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, let me just quickly, I'm going to do a little Q&A type of teaching here. with What, what is the meaning of baptism? It's, it's a way of declaring publicly, public, publicly that the person being baptized really is now welcome in the community of faith. When Jesus was growing up, this practice was already taking place with God's people and around them in a little bit different form. But in that day, when a Gentile decided to become part of the Jewish community, that conversion to that new community would be expressed through this form of baptism. And it would basically say this person is no longer an outsider. They are now part of our family. They're us. Uh, we, we receive them in. The idea we see practiced in the life of John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, was taken from that. And we read about it in the scriptures, Mark chapter 1, uh, and John chapter 1, where, Jesus, where, where John the Baptist literally baptized Jesus. Well, what was the reason they called him John the Baptist? Oh, I think he started the denomination, the Baptist. No, no. <laughs> No, uh, he, was, he baptized people, and that was kind of his, his nickname. You know, Jesus didn't have other cousins, you know, like Peter the Catholic or Matthew the Methodist or, you know, or, uh, or Bubba the Episcopalian or anything like that. He, John the Baptist was the one that he's noted because he started baptizing all of these disciples. And this was a way for the Israelites to say, I want to repent. I want to be known as one who loves God. And now I'm part of the community of God. See, that's the, that's the part of the imagery of the water. Jesus himself was baptized as an expression to identify with us, with the human race. He commanded his followers to do the same. And his final statement was, dive in, get baptized. And then everywhere you go, you challenge people to be baptized so they become a part of the community of faith. And they identify and tell the rest of the world, I'm identifying with these people right here. I'm part of them because they're part of him. Actually, we are his. And we're part of his life and being extended. Well, people ask this question too. You know, how much water does it take when you get baptized? You know, some, there's, there's some groups that have different traditions, and I'm not here to, to grind any theological axes because some, de- some denominations practice sprinkling of water. Other denominations will immerse and, and dip folks under is what we're going to do today, which is really hard for a lot of people. But it's amazing how this little, uh, this little activity can kind of break through pride just a little bit. You know, how many times, oh, I don't want anyone to see me with my mascara running, my hair down. Well, we do it this way. We do immersion because every baptism in the New Testament recorded was done this way. Usually out in rivers. Go through the book of Acts. People would stop along the road. What's keeping me from being baptized? Nothing. Let's go down that bank. Let's go in that river. And they'd baptize him. Jesus was baptized in a river. So all of it was immersion. Now, have I sprinkled people? Absolutely. People who were dying couldn't get into a, a pool or, or didn't have enough time, I would sprinkle them. I'm not against that, but I'm really for this because it's the way they did it in the Bible and people got to make a statement for God. The people that are going to do it today, that are signed up today, they're saying, this is who I'm identifying with. You see, the word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo and it means to dip under. Now, while it is a picture of dying, 
dying with Jesus Christ, being taken under. When he went into the tomb, he was buried for three days. The picture here is you're buried, you're going under. And then you're coming up, and you're being cleansed, and you're being washed and lifted and raised up into new life. A life with Jesus Christ who resurrected from the tomb on the third day. But while it's a picture of dying, there's another word picture that the Greeks used for this. It's also a word of dying, being died. Because when they're talking about this, and this is where the immersion comes in, is it had to do with when they would take a piece of cloth and dip it in dye, they would totally immerse it so that it would take on uh, a new color. That's a powerful picture because when we get baptized, we take, on, we take on new life. It's not our life. We die. It's the life of Jesus Christ now that lives in us, Galatians 2.20. It's not that I live. I've died. I've been crucified. And now it's Jesus Christ that lives through me. So that's why we do this. But I will sprinkle somebody if, if, if the need is there. Well, is baptism a guarantee of getting into heaven when I die? No. The offer of forgiveness and new life in this world and forever in the next is given only by what? The grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, it is by grace through faith that you are saved. It is not the works of your own. This is something we do, but this does not have any saving efficacious power to get you to heaven. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? He had two thieves one kept ridiculing him and talking to the people there, succumbing to peer pressure around him. And the other one said, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. Today, Jesus, would you remember me in your kingdom? And right in the middle of dying, Jesus turns to him and says, you got it today. I will remember you. You will be in paradise. Was he baptized? No. Died on the cross. So no, you don't have to be baptized to get to heaven. But it's interesting that this is part of identifying with Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection into new life. See, every other teacher, every other philosopher, every other guru, every other so-called religious leader came to live, and their mission and their ministry was interrupted by their death. Not so with Jesus. Jesus, he came to die, and his death didn't interrupt his ministry or mission. It fulfilled it. He died and rose again. So no, it's not a prerequisite to heaven. But I do believe this, that you'll experience a little bit more heaven down here when you do it. Well, another question is, is baptism for adult believers only or do we do it for infants? Um, again, well-meaning Christ followers disagree on this over what baptism signifies and represents. Some churches practice that it's just a believer's baptism, which is basically what we do. If you come to Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him, that's who we baptize. It's about a faith commitment, and that's why we do it. The people you're going to see today have made that statement of faith. Their understanding is that baptism is simply an outward expression of something that's taken place inwardly, that God lives there, dwells there, and is changing them from the inside out. It's not just this religious ritual. Our practice is that we will baptize adults and children, probably 8, 9, 10 and older, that understand I'm a sinner. And I need this life with Jesus Christ to forgive me. And I want to identify with him first and his body second. And I want to make this public. I'm not going to be some kind of stealth saint. I'm going to be the real deal and I'm going to do it publicly. 
Now, this is what we do do with children and infants. We dedicate them on the basis of 1 Samuel chapter 1 when Hannah, uh, when Hannah um, dedicated her son Samuel and then Jesus was dedicated, remember, at the temple in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. So that's what we do. We dedicate children. Now, the question is this. Is, is baptism more than a religious ritual? If you look over at Romans chapter 6, let me read a couple of verses where Paul addresses this, and he talks about what baptism signifies and what it does. He says this in verses 3 through 6. He says, uh, uh, um, he says, Are you not aware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, the symbolism of being, uh, dying with him. Therefore, because of that, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we've been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we certainly also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Ultimately, friends, that's our hope. See, again, while we will cry, we will grieve the reason that we can continue to go forward when we experience something that is uh, as difficult as someone like Ryan passing is because that's our hope. Jesus resurrected, and we too. We don't die. We simply go from life to life because of Jesus Christ. And see, the, the purpose of this is... So, so many times, it, I said it just a few minutes ago, we focus on, oh, I got to do all of this, and I got to fight this, and I got to fight that. And we always want to go, no, 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 N-O-N-O-N-O. But you see, the Bible's all about this. No, no, no. K-N-O-W, K-N-O-W. Know Jesus Christ and what he's done. Because the book of Romans is a polemic on how God deals with our sin. And in this passage right here, there's a powerful transition that goes from the theology to the practical of what it is. In verses 3 through 5, he's saying, you are identifying with Jesus Christ. And then in verses 6 through 15, he's saying, you can be liberated through sin because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that's where all of our sin ends up. See, part of this power is found, though, in the act of obedience. If you've made a commitment and said yes to following Christ... And you haven't been baptized. Maybe today you want to do it. Maybe you'll just say, I'm going to go all in, clothes and all. I encourage you to do so. We make a big deal about this. You know why? Because Jesus does. He did it and didn't have to. And he said, I want you to do it. Have you ever... See, spiritual disciplines have a way of compounding in our lives. As you do one and then do the next one and do the next one... It has this powerful way of building in your life. Have you ever, have you ever read, received a gift of stocks or stock options? See, initially you might have thought, ah, oh, it's just a piece of paper. And then all of a sudden the person that gives it to you, maybe two months, two years, some years later comes up to you and says, hey, would you take out that piece of paper? And you take it out and they say, why don't you cash it in? And all of a sudden you do that and you found out what was $200 is now $2,000. That's the way these spiritual disciplines work in your life. 
See, public baptism is simply the expression of a person becoming a follower of Jesus and telling the world. There was a pastor who had this little boy come up to him after he talked about baptism on a Sunday morning. And the guy comes up, the little boy comes up and grabs his sleeve and says, Pastor, Pastor, I want to get advertised. I want to get advertised. And, and the pastor goes, what was that? I, I want to get advertised. And, oh, the pastor's, oh, you want to get baptized? Yeah, I want to get advertised. He just had a hard time with baptized. And I thought, you know, that's really a good statement. Because these people today, when they go in here and they come up, they are advertising, I am about him and what he wants to do in and through me in this place. Well, one more question. Can I get into heaven even if I say no to baptism? I mean, am I still okay? Can I still get there if I'm not baptized? The answer is yes. You can. Now, remember the thief on the cross. I already alluded to that. But this is my question to you. Yes, but this is the question. Why would you want to? See, I have a pastoral concern in this area. If you would say that you are a Christ follower, but you've never been baptized and you have no plans to do so, then in a way what you're saying to Jesus is, you know, I know you died an agonizing death publicly, nakedly, hurtfully, on this cross. But, I'm not going to follow this command. I'll take your sacrifice. I'll get into heaven. But when it comes to really obeying in some things that may cause me some issues of pride, that you've called me to take this next step in my Christian life, you know what? I don't know. I think I'll just take a pass. This is what I would say. That's not a good way to launch into or establish a good dynamic of spiritual life. When Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. Let me encourage you. If you're a follower of Jesus, and if you've never been baptized, it's a great moment when you stand in front of a congregation of people and say, I'm in. Chips pushed in all the way. There's no gamble in this, but this is it. I'm doing it. Stop.